Welcome to Inspiring Entrepreneurs Montreal, showcasing stories from outstanding business people by BDO Canada, Dan Delmar and Mike Newton with you. Hello, Mike. Welcome back. Hey, Dan. How are you? Excellent. How are you? Very good. Thank you. Today, a product that is, um, well, it's a bit of a comeback, actually. We all remember those old Casio watches and other brands that had solar batteries from the 90s. Where did they go? Why did we stop wearing solar watches? I don't really know, but they are back. And Solio's Watches, a Montreal-based company, Co-founded by Montrealer Samuel Leroux is uh, one product that aims to bring the phenomenon back, and I say, why not? I totally agree, though. You know, you asked the question, why did it go? I can think of two reasons right off the bat. One of them, the styling left a little bit to be desired if you go back to some of those watches, A. And B, I think the technology and, and, and you know, that transparency of how you uh, absorbed the light, uh, it just, I, I don't think it, keep, it could keep up with uh, the emerging market. So uh, it was a great idea that, uh, that saw itself uh, go away, but yeah, it, why is it taking this long to come back? The other thing that uh, Solios discusses on its website is the concept of planned obsolescence, which I think is another reason why it went away. And, and of course, if you have the same watch for a lifetime and you just switch out the straps, uh, you know, throwing out watches every few years is profitable for some watchmakers. Yeah, planned obsolescence is great. Uh, you know, I, I look at that and say uh, the only difference between them and everybody else in the market uh, is that they're saying it on their website. It don't tell me that most people's marketing uh, behind the scenes doesn't think of planned obsolescence. I mean, uh, what, what version of iPhone are we on? Uh, you know, yes, the technology continues to improve and justifies, but, uh, you know, at a certain point in time, we need to find a way to know uh, uh, to, to not constantly replace in this disposable society that we're living in. I just bought a brand new used BlackBerry, and I have to say I'm very satisfied with it. Um, you know, recycling old phones, phones have gotten to a point where they're kind of all the same at this point. So why not recycle one that's a year or two old? Yeah, it's it's interesting. I think, I think from a phone perspective, it's it's a little bit of a fashion statement to a certain degree. Nobody will admit to it, but you know, it's you're either in the group or you're not. You're user either on an Apple or you're on an Android. So it's uh, you know, there's there, there, there's a philosophical approach that uh, to that that uh, that goes much deeper down than I think either one of us can figure out. <laughs> so the the planned obsolescence angle is interesting. We'll get into that with Samuel today, and they put it right on their website. So they they really put their values forward. And speaking of values, we'll we'll dig into that from an HR perspective today as well. So how do you build a team that reflects your values? How do you communicate your values, not just with PR, which is, you know, of interest to me, but within the company? How do you build those values at a practical level in the company? So we'll talk to Alita Eid, our HR expert, about that later on the program. And Samuel's on the way, of course, to talk about that solar watch. But first, let's get to some news and notes. And this week, Mike, uh, last week on the program, we were talking about the CRA potential strike now we're here, so things have moved pretty quickly, and I did promise an update for our listeners here uh, as to the implications for small and medium-sized businesses. What does this mean? Uh, if the CRA is striking, can we all kind of hang back a little and uh, play fast and loose with our deadlines? So to answer your question, I, you know, the, the problem with this is it's not just a CRA. It's 155,000 workers across the country um, who are um, basically everywhere from CRA to Canada Post to everything else. So there's a bunch of, play, a bunch of things at play here. Um, and, uh, you know, as you look at it and you say, well, those of us that are filing tax returns electronically, uh, explain to me how... <laughs> 
strike affects me pushing a button and sending a tax return in electronically. Um, for those people that are sending them in hard copy still, obviously the post office, uh, you know, and the postal strike and, 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 and where employees are going to be on strike is going to be an issue. Um, I do think the biggest problem is going to be uh, those people that have refunds getting uh, getting their refunds back. So uh, do, I an- do I answer your question with the following? This is purely speculation. Uh, don't hold back because you have another beast, uh, which is we file two pro- two tax returns in this province, and Quebec uh, has yet to opine on whether they would uh, uh, respect a delay that was put out by, by CRA. I'm suggesting on the 23rd, sorry, I'm suggesting that on the 25th of, uh, of April, uh, if, uh, if the MRQ hasn't opined, you're not getting an extension. So I would just imagine all your accountants out there that would really love to file your Quebec return and then wait two weeks to file a federal return. So business as usual in terms of what you have to submit to the government, but in terms of what they give back to you, I mean, should people plan for delays on things like uh, reimbursements or uh, credits or whatnot? Yeah, I mean, unless behind the scenes they're more automated than we suspect, uh, I do anticipate that there will be a delay in a lot of things, including, you know, GST, QST checks that are going out uh, and a number of things. So I think that's going to be a problem. Uh, I should probably, you know, the only only good point might be it may take a few extra months for them to send out their desk audit requests of your donation and medical slips. So, hey, maybe that's the the win in the end of this. Okay, well, best of luck uh, to those dealing with the CRA in the next little while. Mike, you wanted to talk about the fundraising cycle for businesses and nonprofits as well, I suppose. Um, and uh, you have uh, a flowchart that you'd like to talk about today. So in terms of the fundraising cycle, as, as you guys uh, at BDO see it, uh, walk us through the steps. So what are, what are the basic steps, starting from the, the identification of uh, the client uh, all the way to how you manage that relationship? I'm actually going to jump in and say that I owe this to uh, a gentleman that I work with on the Habilitas board named Sean Zickman, who presented this to us uh, yesterday. So I really like the model. Uh, I'm going to take it from the fundraising side, and I'm going to take it to a business side as well for us. And really, it's kind of the life cycle of of things. So you're talking about from a fundraising and from a, 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 um, uh, an NPO environment, that identification of who are your potential donors, the qualifications of how likely are they to give, uh, cultivating and building genuine relationships, solicitation, when is the right time to ask and at what time is the right, and then obviously hugely important are stewardship, the, that gratitude and accountability. So, uh, you know, I've got to give uh, a, a, a due uh, support to where it came from, so uh, good job on this, Sean, and it's, it, it started a great conversation in our in our board meeting yesterday, and, and it got me thinking last night, and how does this apply to the entrepreneurial world, and how does this apply to clients? So, you know, if I look at this and, and, you know, we talk about this discussion in identification of who are your potential donors, I can take that in the exact same direction and go, hey, who are your potential clients? Are they, you know, are they new clients? Are we looking at new products? Are we looking at new acquisitions? I mean, this blue sky thinking process is one that, you know, and, and, and I think it's important to talk about today because... As we consider the, the, the situation we're living in, in terms of you know recession and interest rates and a whole bunch of other things where people have fear of what's coming, you can't stop the blue sky thinking. I mean, I, you need to still be looking at new opportunities. That, oh, that button always needs to be on. The tendency in, in a hard time is to buckle down, cut out things, uh, you know, stick to some basics, and uh, I think the opportunities increase 
in, in a harder economy than they do when everybody's flying high. You know, you look at the book that was written years ago, you know, Red Ocean, Blue Ocean, and, and, and this whole discussion about how, you know, you can start with a product and, and be sitting in a blue ocean all by yourself, and the next thing you know, the sharks are coming along, and you have to find a way to constantly be moving to blue ocean. Well, you need to be having that constant thinking about who are your new clients and, and where do you go. I mean, conventional marketing wisdom says that the cheapest uh, and, and the greatest approach to dealing with uh, new business is your existing clients, right? I mean, they've got the relationship, you've got this, this sense of trust, uh, and if you're doing a good job, it should be a natural fit. Um, but, you know, it doesn't stop. No matter how good your client relationships are, no matter how good your product is, what does tomorrow bring? And you can't stop thinking about that. It's interesting because in terms of client uh, acquisition, I, I think most companies really have, uh, my, probably myself included, have two steps. You know, you seek the client and you acquire the client, and that's kind of that kind of where it's where it ends here. So I like the I like the memo you're sharing, Mike. And I'll recap the main points here. We don't often uh, share internal memos from you guys necessarily, but the points are great uh, for those that want to take notes. So number one, identification and consciousness. So looking for those new clients. Uh, then number two is the qualification of the pipeline. How likely are they to join? How costly is it for them to, uh, to join? Uh, number three, cultivation, building that relationship, building loyalty. Number four, solicitation. So when to go back to those clients for new business. Uh, uh, five, stewardship, uh, when and how, why it's important, uh, going through various things with this client and how to, how to bring this relationship full circle. So there's five really distinct points there uh, about client acquisition, not just getting them and uh, hopefully keeping them. 100%. And, and, you know, it, it's the hard part of, um, you know, when you look at the corporate world. Uh, the salesman's job is to go out and open a door and bring in a new client. Uh, and in many cases, the relationship stops there. They, they may continue to, uh, you know, lack of a better term, wine and dine the, the potential clients. But it's, it seems to end at that point. And, and that whole discussion needs to be a constant evolution within the organization that 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 identification and consciousness, the qualification, I mean, how much time and money do we spend on new business, where ultimately at the end of the day, the cost to bring it in, in many cases, exceeds the value of what we've brought in. And whether that's an amortization of marketing and advertising dollars, whether it's a wine and dine environment in a professional services area, you know, what is your cost associated with bringing in? And, and we have to have this constant dialogue that's going on. You know, you, you, you turn the salesman loose, <laughs> he's going to nail whatever he can because that's what he's good at. But what are the remaining implications? And if everybody's not talking to each other, we find ourselves selling a product or a service or to an individual or to another business that maybe we don't even want at the end of the day. And, you know, we're, we're going to talk about this a bit later in terms of the company's mission. Well, this mission has to be part of the discussion. What clients do you want? What do they look like? What do you envision? And if you're going to go to market for a new client or a new organization, why are you doing it? I want to bring up one current events topic, which I think speaks to the mission of the show and also uh, my work as a, as a PR person. I found this interesting. The head of Torstar, the publisher, um, is urging Canadian business to dedicate 20% of their ad budget to local media. They're saying tech giants are taking the work from journalists and uh, the advertisers are not necessarily reaping the benefits. And I'm very sympathetic to that argument. And uh, so Mr. Bitov of the of Torstar told uh, diners at the Royal York at the, uh, the event to, quote, go back to your office and find out what percentage of your media spend goes back to supporting Canadian-owned and operated media. If it's not 20%, he said, it's not good enough. 
And that is bold. Um, I'd be like lucky in some environments to get 10% dedicated to local media or to PR. I think it's a good thing. I think people undervalue uh, local media and uh, so-called legacy media in, in a tech age. But once you get the, the respectability of an article on the Globe and Mail, National Post, or, you know, showing a, a, a station like CJAD, there's very little comparing it to, you know, a bunch of likes on Twitter or Facebook. It's a whole other level of credibility and uh, can serve as an important building block for your brand. This is huge. I, and, and I've been following this, actually. I mean, there was a discussion of this recently in, in the Australian market, uh, uh, European market, is, you know, the whole implication of uh, big tech and basically using media for free. Uh, you know, and, and at what point, forget, you know, whether it's just localized, just this whole concept of, of diminishing and devaluing uh, the journalist and, and, and the work that's being done for just throwing it out there for, for free. And, and why is, you know, why do we have editorial rights? Why do we have royalty rights? But when it comes to news, all of a sudden uh, it's gone. And, and I think this is, this is going to have to come down to obviously a significant impact at the corporate level, but as well as, as at the government level in terms of how are you going to maintain either, either having it locally supported uh, and uh, the same token, how do you, how do you justify the life of journalism? Because you know what? If you don't start doing it, we're going to start losing good journalists. And losing good advertising opportunities as well, good advertising space. 100%. I mean, obviously, they go hand in hand at, at, at the end. But, uh, you know, my, my, my fear is, 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 you know, we lose the local side of things. We, you know, we, we, I guess the right word is we need to be monetizing a lot of these things for the right people. Uh, and, and, and it's not that we live in a world that hasn't learned to monetize anything and everything, but in many cases, we're monetizing it for the wrong people. Well, thanks to you, Mike, and to BDO for supporting local media, of course. And is, is now a good time to, to, to announce that we're back for a 15th season in the fall? You bet. All right. Well, there you have it. Thank you for your support, BDO. And let's get right to our entrepreneur. His name is Samuel Leroux. He's the co-founder of Solio's Watches. Samuel, welcome to CJD. Thanks a lot, Dan. Thanks for having me. And thanks, Mike, as well. Pleasure to be with you. First, Samuel, the easiest question, what is Solios? So we uh, we launched Solios, it was in 2018 through a Kickstarter campaign, but we're co commercializing solar-powered watches uh, with the objective of creating the watch with the lowest environmental footprint impact. And without, of course, sacrificing on a thing we love, such as a very nice and elegant design, and of course, an accessible price. So it's a watch that represents what uh, Alex, my business partner, and I wanted, and there was nothing such in the market. So we basically created a watch for ourselves that would come with no uh, sacrifices. I have to wonder, Mike, this product category, solar watches, where did they go and why did they go away? I don't know. I, and, and it's wondering, you know, as I was doing some prep for the show, I looked and I was just like, you know, the whole solar power discussion and, you know, it, it, it's, it's, it, it's new, but it's not, right? I mean, it, it's going to bring us to part of the conversations here, I guess, uh, Samuel, is, you know, where did it go? I can remember uh, in the, I don't know what it was, maybe the, is it the 80s? Is it possible that Casio and a few others uh, next to my, uh, my, <laughs> my Casio watch that was digital that had the little uh, calculator on on it, uh, who's, you know, who foretold I was going to be an accountant. Um, but it's fascinating. So uh, give us a little bit of story, maybe, uh, to, to some of this and why solar came, went, and then came back again. So solar, you're right, Mike, have uh, existed for at least 25 years now. And 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 the one who brought it out what was uh, Seiko. So we do work with, uh, with Seiko there in Japan right now. 
Um, and there's a big reason why we went for solar watches. So we're the only player in the world doing only solar powered watches. And they came back because they're now um, very, very efficient. And they can also help us uh, transition the whole industry towards more sustainable fashion instead of fast fashion. Because a watch battery will, on average, uh, its lifespan will be two years. And the main reason why we overconsume watches it's because a battery dies. So we all have dead watches in a drawer. We tell ourselves that we will go change the battery, but it's probably the only thing that stays at the bottom of our to-do list and we just never do it. Um, so we chose to go uh, with solar because we wanted to create a product that would be more durable than uh, just these two years that we have on average, but without sacrificing on a accessible price uh, because there's a lot of, very good mechanical watches, but they're quite expensive. So yes, they don't have any batteries, but it's not a solution that is accessible for the mass market that can help transition the whole industry towards more sustainable fashion. And the solar technology allows us to increase the lifespan of the watch by uh, 10 times. So there's a lot of advantages in, into going solar. So just maybe uh, for our audience, uh, def define how you used Kickstarter and maybe just how, how it's used. I mean, I know for a lot of people it's it's commonplace, but uh, there are still people out there that don't understand. And, and how did you kick it off, excuse the pun, and how did you how did you get the momentum? We used Kickstarter for multiple reasons, um, but the main one was to prove to yourself, is there really a demand for our mission, our philosophy, and our product? and the watch itself, we launched in 2018, but it took almost four years to develop because it was something fairly new, uh, not just in terms of technology. Uh, the technology has existed for at least 20 years, that, like we mentioned, but the design itself, we wanted to have a very minimal and timeless design, and that was not uh, ever done in the watch industry because our dial was transparent enough to let the light, light rays go through, but was opaque to the human eye to keep that very elegant design. And the Kickstarter allowed us to basically sell in advance for first production. Uh, so on top of proving that there was a demand for the product, um, how do we kick off? And we were lucky enough to be bootstrapped for almost the, the first four years of Solios and Kickstarter helped a lot for that. We were able to get the money in advance to launch a first production. So that's how we used the, the, the event. And the what we did is that we uh, rented the um, Rialto Theater on Park Avenue. And we when we booked that, uh, that, that venue, we had to invite at least 400 people. And we said, oh my gosh, how, like, why did we do that? How, how are we going to invite all these people? But finally, when we were flying from Montreal to Tokyo and Hong Kong and, and Europe, we did like huge lists. Uh, and on the plane, there was no Wi-Fi. So we did personal message to all our friends and family and friends of friends. And we sent all these messages out uh, to the point where Facebook blocked our account because they thought we were spamming. Uh, but we were able to sell out the event and we had 600 people listening to your pitch uh, on o October 2018. And in 15 minutes, we were able to achieve our our whole goal. Um, and that night we did almost three times the whole objective of the, of the campaign. We still had our, 
our jobs so our boss were in the room and they came to see us and they they said i guess this is it and and that was pretty much it yeah so the transition from employee to entrepreneur i mean obviously the entrepreneur started while you were the employee um Give, give us some of the biggest fears and concerns and, and obstacles maybe you faced as you walked away from a, a fixed paycheck to, uh, to a reality of an entrepreneurial life. It is a challenge. It is a challenge. And, and Kickstarter, again, was a good way to help smooth the transition because at least you have a proof that people were willing to buy your product and at least support you. Um, but of course, it's still, there's still a long way to go. Uh, to be comfortable, but it was a big challenge because the prototype we created took almost four years and we took all our paychecks and all the vacations to travel to watch fairs, whether it was in Geneva, Japan, and Hong Kong. And we paid a lot of money to do all these prototypes because it was a, a new product. And it can be very easy to launch a watch company. You can go to China and ask for a specific design and have it uh, delivered to your door within three months. And that's it. But if you want to, if you want to have a positive impact and help the market transition to where your values are at, uh, you have to create something new. You have to innovate. And after the first two years, uh, we didn't even know if it was possible because we received a, a prototype from Japan, and the white dial looked great, but the black dial was so ugly. Uh, it was. We told ourselves. That's never going to happen. And and then we told the company that, well, that's not going to make it. There's no way we can commercialize this, this prototype. Uh, and they just canceled us. They said, well, we're not doing it. It's too complicated. It doesn't fit in our very classic supply chain model. So we're out. And we were back at the start. And it was quite painful, a lot of emotions. But I realized I was in my car and I was like, no, how can that happen? And and I realized, wow, at least being an entrepreneur, there's a lot of emotions and and you feel alive. And 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 I like a few seconds after I had a big smile on my face and told myself, let's go, let's do it, back at it. So two years later, we uh we were able to finally have this prototypes, but it takes a lot of sacrifice. It takes a lot of uh, you know, you have to put your hand down and just uh, follow your dream and 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 do it. So it is a big challenge. It's interesting. I mean, you discuss you know your, the travel and the values associated with it. I mean, you're going to go to different watch fairs. You're going to go to different parts of the world where values and 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 I guess expectations are different. How 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 do you leave here? Do all of those things uh, while you're on the road? And what are you looking for to maintain your values and your and your concept? So when we first got the idea, um, Alex and I, about launching a company, so I met, I met Alex at university. Um, we both studied in finance at HSC, Montreal, but without telling each other. So so we were friends, but we had no clue we had these entrepreneurial dreams until we landed on the same team for case competition and entrepreneurship. And that's when we realized that, oh, you, you do have this dream also, and we were working very well, and after university, we, we decided, well, we're, we have the same type of dream, and we have a lot of fun, and we're working well, so why not launch a business together? But it's not because you want to launch something that you have the idea right away. So we jungle with a bunch of ideas. None of them were either excited enough to, exciting enough to, to make us leave her job and, and, and pursue that full-time. 
until we, and it might sound a bit cheesy, but we um, we watched a documentary of Leonardo DiCaprio about climate change called Before the Flood. And that really triggered something in us uh, and made us realize that although we were well-intentioned, we had no clue how damaging our life habits were and how uninformed we were about climate change. And that was 10 years ago when climate change was not as big as it, it, it is right now. And we told ourselves, all right, so if we're to start a business, it has to have a positive impact on the environment. And still, the subject is still very broad. Um, I remember one of the first idea we had was to renovate building to reduce their uh, energy consumption. And we quickly realized that we were not engineer. Uh, <laughs> so it was quite hard to add value there. And same goes for any technology ideas that we had. So we went back to the drawing boards and asked ourselves, well, how can we add value? And that was by creating a symbol to raise awareness about climate change and help us improve our life habits. And it was in Europe that we finally got the idea of, of creating a watch that would be a symbol because a watch is a fashion statement, but it is a very strong fashion statement. You can tell a lot about someone's values just by looking at the watch he has on, uh, on his wrist. And there were no watches that were accessible that at the time, I know that the, the trend was very minimal and elegant design that was sustainably made and accessible. And that's where we sell, well, let's launch it. It would be a, a direct alternative, a direct solution to what already exists on the market, but it will also be a symbol that will raise awareness just like we wanted. And uh, Mike, solar watchers are back, which is very exciting. Um, why they went away, uh, why there should be any other product really to me is kind of of a mystery why have batteries when you can when this tech can actually work they started on kickstarter which we're talking about mike and that's a, that's certainly a very interesting way to go about the start of a business yeah kickstarter has been has been around for a while uh, i will tell you that uh, i guess from where i sit as as the third party there seems to be a mixed bag of opinion on use of kickstarter i mean kickstarter has and and i think you know from samuel's discussion and the rialto theater a phenomenal way to get a feel for your market and and to kick things off uh, there's also an, uh, a number of other scenarios of Kickstarter that are used very, uh, shall we say, uh, self-serving at the end of the day. So I'm going to throw this one back to you, Dan. I mean, I, I know you have a lot more of an insight into this. What's, what do you feel about uh, how Kickstarter is used? Well, it depends on the company. It depends how they grow and if they adapt. If you, if you remain a sort of a purely Kickstarter product, you're not exposing yourself to market forces, right? I mean, I'll, I'll throw it back to Samuel. What do you think, Samuel? How have you adapted the model? Because the people who believe in your product originally, your, your core fans, aren't necessarily going to be the people that are going to grow that product and make it a worldwide brand, right? So how have you adjusted and, and upscaled your business uh, to get out of that Kickstarter space? Absolutely. And, and that was one of our biggest challenges. Uh, of course, Kickstarter at the beginning, at first, it was a lot of friends and family. So of course, some of them are there for the product, but some of them are just here to encourage you and 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 help you lift off the business. So going out of Kickstarter after we did our campaign was a big challenge. And and the way we use Kickstarter, there's multiple ways you can use Kickstarter, but I think the most important thing about Kickstarter is to do all your marketing and your campaign before launching the Kickstarter and not during the campaign. And, and that was one of the mistakes we did is that after we launched a campaign, we started doing marketing, a thing that we should have done before. So 
I, when the uh, we did a small campaign, we did, we did only one month. I know some people can can do two months, and I think even three months. Um, but we did only one month, and that was a good thing because after we had to figure out how to make the business sustainable uh, without having a Kickstarter campaign. And what really helped is that we launched a campaign very, very close to the moment we were supposed to receive our first batch. So there was not a lot of time between the launch of our campaign and the first production we received. And that was by design. We we didn't want to let people wait a year or two and have delayed and have problem with the watch. Um, and and which happened to be a good thing because we had four years of problem problem with the watch. So it's quite hard to launch a product if you launch it and four years later you finally have the the your first unit. Um, so we finished the campaign in November and April. We shipped the first watches, which which allowed us to do a lot of content to bring the watches to the people, give the watches herself, do some videos and get some reviews and input, which brought some traction to the company. And also all the medias, um, they don't do a lot of coverage for companies that are in their Kickstarter phase. But as soon as they're up and running, they're open to have a discussion. So we were fortunate enough to have a great article from La Presse from um, just after our first month. And the next morning after we got this article, we had few people waiting in front of our office, which is like a 200 square foot office where I think it was mainly meant for brooms and, and stuff like that, uh, waiting to buy watches just because of that article. And then we never stopped growing from there. It's uh, it's awesome. I mean, you look at uh, you know you look at the evolution. So I got two questions for you, and we'll, we'll plug very quickly here. What are your price points? What are we looking at? I'm sure those people that haven't already Googled it are wondering what the price points are. So we're all around three three forty uh, Canadian dollar, and all our watches they f- they fit all our straps because we don't want to encourage people to get uh, more than one watch. But over time, they can swap between straps to uh, change their style. So all the straps are. 65 to 70. Excellent. The uh, what's the ambition? Where do you where do you go with this? I mean, you've you've done a great job. You've created a, you know a, a new line. I mean, is this just more design features, or is there more uh, R and D and more uh, creativity coming? Well, to be honest, I think when we first launched Solios, we didn't realize how much can be done in the watch industry, and. At first, we thought it would be more design, but now we realize that there's so much more innovation we can do to reduce the environmental footprint. We're also still very small, although two-thirds of our sales are now outside of Quebec. There's a lot that needs to be changed in the watch industry, in the fashion industry in general, but in the watch industry specifically where not much is being done. So right now, we're currently investing in having our own production line and assembly line in Montreal to create the watch with their lowest carbon footprint impact. Uh, so that will be a huge challenge because the watch industry just does not exist in Canada. So there's a lot of ambition about reducing the carbon footprint impact, but also about educating our audience about greenwashing and what can they do to improve their, their, their lifestyle habits. And I don't know where that will get us. What I do know is that there's no plan about selling the business in a couple of years or at, at, at a certain price. And that's a question we often receive to the point where 
at some point I thought maybe I should have an answer for that. And I asked my mentor and they said, well, no, you, you don't have to. And I think as, as long as I feel fulfilled by, by what I do and excited and I feel that there's a lot of innovation we can, can still bring on, um, I think we're going to be here and there's, there's a lot to do. There's a lot to do, yeah. Samuel, uh, from the marketing perspective, I, I love an intelligent website that projects uh, someone's values. And uh, one phrase that sticks out, uh, there are lots, there's a lot going on there uh, in terms of your values. But one thing that sticks out is planned obsolescence, which I generally never see uh, on the website of any company that sells a product. Planned obsolescence. Um, quick definition, please. I mean, essentially, when, when, when you're forcing a product to become obsolete. But let me ask from your perspective, what does that mean to you? And why is that such an important issue for this company? Well, we don't think about it necessarily. But a watch, a battery that dies in a watch is the main reason why we overconsume watches. And, and we discussed a little bit about, about that. But First, um, I don't know why all batteries on the watches cannot be easily replaced. That is so nonsense to me. I mean, you can do it with your TV remote controller, but not on a watch. So I think the watch industry was designed a little bit like the fashion industry where, uh, and of course, I'm talking more about the, the lower end of the watch uh, industry. So I, that would be under $500. Uh, I think it was designed a little bit like the fashion industry where fast fashion was the main driver of growth but more and more and 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 we uh were very happy about that the last year the sustainable fashion growth overgrew for the first time in 15 years the the, the growth of the fast fashion and there's a lot being done in the fast in the fashion industry with a lot of companies that are b corp and and new textile and and more recycled and reusable clothing but that was not made in the in the watch industry so what we tried to do is to create a watch that would reduce the production of batteries and reduce the overproduction of watches in general and try to create a watch that will last for a long period of time, so at least 15 to 20 years, and not encourage people in getting multiple watches, but mostly encourage them into telling their friends and family about how can they improve their life habits and, and change the way they, they they dress and 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 they go out. So so that was the main purpose behind the behind the watch. Yeah, you're gonna have a hard time telling me that I'm not gonna have multiple watches. I'm a bit of a watch <laughs> freak, so uh, we'll have to have this conversation off air. Um, I, my last question, quickly, um, is one on competition. Um, you know, who do you see as your immediate competition? And and the question that you mentioned before about not wanting to sell out. Do you fear the competition coming from the big boys as they move more towards the solar uh, solar powered? And and is this something to phase you? Absolutely. So the the solar industry is booming. Um, there's a lot of companies getting involved into the the, the the solar watch industry, and that's why we our goal is to remain the, the leader. So right now, if you Google solar watches, we we, we, will, we will be the first brand that comes out, and and our goal is to remain in that position. But there are some. There's a lot of competition. It, it, it is a very competitive market, but. Although there are competitors in the minimalist and elegant design, there are competitors in the, in the solid watch industry, and there are competitors in the sustainable watch industry. Uh, there was none that was bringing all the three together. So for now, I don't think there is a direct competitor. But yes, of course, I think the market will increase. The market will be booming. And I think that's a good thing. I think there should be more sustainable and solar watches. We just have to 
keep innovate. So by bringing the production here in Montreal and by uh, we're currently measuring the exact carbon footprint impact of producing our watches. And our goal is to prove to the world that with real numbers that we hired a low, lowest carbon footprint impact watch. And there are still a lot of things that we need and will do in the watch industry. So I think all the industries should transition to sustainable watches and will push very hard to remain a leader in that in that specific field. Let's add a couple of questions as usual for our podcast audience. You can subscribe on Spotify, Apple, iHeartRadio, etc. Samuel, solar watches, uh, you know, why aren't they all solar at this point? I'm having, I'm struggling, you know, the technology exists, it is there, we're in a battery crisis. I mean, uh, I wonder if government, you know, one day shouldn't just mandate the end of batteries in some devices where they're not needed. Well, and and I think you're totally right. I'm surprised that not all the watches are already solar. Um, but the government, they are moving into that direction, especially in Europe. Um we visited all the major um, Swiss manufacturer about that, that that does movements, and they're all working on solar movement because their customer asked for that. So, and the customer being the watch, the watch brands. So it is coming, and but right now, the part of the reason why it's not everywhere is that solar movement is still quite more expensive than a a quartz movement that is not solar. Uh, so five to ten times the price. So the it is a it, it is a challenge to keep the cost down for a company that already exists and ha- already have a specific uh, economic model. So they'll have to adapt for that. But it's coming, and and I feel that the whole industry is changing. Watches will last for a longer period of time. And Mike, I think uh, you mentioned being a watch fan, and I think by having solar watches instead of quartz watches will allow people to be uh, watch collectors, but all, have all their watches working. So I think it's a good thing. Yeah, it's definitely, uh, you know, uh, lo- loving my watches, you know, and, and it was funny, you made the comment before about you look at somebody's risk and you discuss their morals and values. And, and you know, I, I slowly slid my arm up the sleeve of my shirt with my Longian watch on. Uh, so, you know, uh, I, 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 I recognize sometimes my, my, my values may be a little bit off based on the watch I wear. Uh, but no, I, I totally agree. I, I think that opportunity to have a multitude of, of watches and, 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 you know, whether that is, you know, high end or whether that's low end or whether that's middle market, uh, the reality is, why are we still using batteries, Dan? I completely agree with you. I just don't get it. Uh, you know, the perpetual motion and, and everything else from a Rolex, which is which is great, and a lot of them are like that. I mean, but, you know, you put your watch away for uh, two days and, uh, you know, you got to stand there and wiggle your arm in, in order to get your watch going again. So, you know, there, there, there's a lot of problems with, uh, you know, with, with a lot of this, and, and, and I do think that solar has a place. Uh, and yeah, I, you know, I was sad to see my Casio go back in, in the 80s and 90s. But I think uh, what, what you guys have come up with now is, uh, is great to see. And I think it's I, it, hopefully it's, it's just the beginning of where this goes. Thanks, Mike. I appreciate all the comments. And don't worry about the Longine. I'm, I'm mostly talking about quartz watches and ah, okay. there me- we go. <laughs> mechanical watches are a beautiful project. Uh, it's just <laughs> not as accessible. And our goal is really to create yeah. a solution that would help uh, the mass market. But yeah. No, I love those watches. Don't don't get me wrong. (laughs) (laughs) Our one piece of advice for inspiring entrepreneurs is on the way with the co-founder of Solio's Watches, Samuel Leroux, Solar Watches. Very cool. 
But first, let's turn to our expert, this time on HR and the company's values. How do you build a team that aligns with your values? Our guest is Alita Eid, Senior Manager, HR Advisory at BDO Canada. Welcome back, Alita. Thank you, Dan. And Mike, it's so important, especially for business like this, uh, that is very value-centric, that does seriously differentiate itself from uh, other players in the market to project those values. Yeah, there's no doubt. It's hard to have values uh, locked in somebody's head uh, or locked in a safe somewhere. I mean, the reality is, is they have to be out there. They have to be shared. And I guess my first question to you, Alita, is, you know, how do you assure that uh, that all of uh, the employees are aware of an organization's mission? And then as as part of HR, how do you get them to, to move and align with, with the uh, organization's missions itself? So first, I'd say that uh, the organization's mission um, should be communicated frequently and through various channels. So we're not talking just about putting it on the website or social media as a statement or... Uh, but also internally in your daily practices. It should be part of your daily office communications. It should be all over your intranet, uh, mentioned in company meetings, training session, just to ensure that your employees are exposed to the statement, the mission statement on a regular basis and have a clear understanding of it. Also, you would need as a company and business owners to provide context and incorporate your mission into your policies and daily practices and even give the opportunity to employees um, to give you some feedback and input on it. So simply stating it as a mission statement is not going to be enough to express the importance of it, but uh, providing context, for example, will allow employees to understand how the mission uh, aligns with the work that they do and, and their goals, for example. To also say that um, it's important to integrate the mission into the development plans of employees just to, you know, make the link between the role, um, their input and uh, overall, you know, achievement and, and performance. The hard, the hard part, I guess, for, for you know, to, to look at COVID, post-COVID, uh, you know, I, I'm a little old school. Uh, a large part of mission and drive and ambition was, was what I did. Uh, what you did, not necessarily like you said, what I, you know, I, I, I said in a blurb or, you know, you sent out in an HR update or whatever the scenario is. So, you know, it leads to the question, what's the, what role does the organization's mission play in motivating employees to perform at their best? And, and if you can't find a way to kind of express that visually, um, you know, how, how, how hard is that? So, um, I feel like, um, you know, when it's clear, when it's well communicated, when it's well expressed, even by leaders, okay, and your management team, they have to live by it, they have to um, showcase the um, the behaviors and the attitudes that, that go with it on a daily basis is what's going to help motivate your employees to also um, align with it. So that's it. As as much as you you have to communicate it, you'd have to live by it, and and then it will serve as a driving force and provide your employees. What you want it is to provide uh, your employees a sense of purpose and direction. So maybe the as a company you believe in in your mission statement and and it means the world to you. But how do you get your employees to also jump on on that boat with you and and push in the in the right direction? You want to inspire them to take ownership of their work and feel a sense of pride that's that's where you want to bring them 
like most of these things, it's, it's a top-down model, and you need to have buy-in, and you need to have that uh, sense of cohesion uh, amongst uh, amongst all the players, especially at, at the higher levels of an organization. And, and, and I'm sure from an HR perspective, that's not an easy thing to get. No, it's not an easy at all. It's, it's not an easy, but what we can do is really just um, help management and help the owners um, of businesses just to remind them to, because often what happens is that they do have the mission. They know it. Um, they live by it on a daily basis, but it's not reflected into their daily um, operations. And that's what we can do. We can, into, as a HR, we'd like to, we like to integrate it into their um, HR practices, basically, and measure employee engagement just to see um, are employees engaged? What do they think about the mission? Do they feel that it's incorporated um, in their role? And do they feel that the, their goals and objectives align with the overall um, goals of the company? Last quick question. How do you measure it? So you measure it uh, typically with, you know, seeing if the goals and objectives are are met uh, by employees and do they are they completely un- aligned with with the mission. But in order for them to to achieve these goals, they have to understand what the mission is. Um, I said it before, you measure it also with employee engagement uh, through pulse surveys or one on ones just to understand um if the alignment is there. And uh, typically, if you see an employee innovating, um, you know, and and so innovating in their work, bringing new ideas, it's because um, most likely they're they're aligned and they feel that they have the opportunity to to contribute directly and have a direct impact. Alita Eid, Senior Manager, HR Advisory at BDO Canada on values. Thanks very much, Alita. Thank you. And as we come to the end of our program, let's turn to our entrepreneur, Samuel Leroux, co-founder of Solio's Watchers, and ask him for his one piece of advice for inspiring entrepreneurs. Samuel, what do you think? Well, of course, there's a lot of advice you can give. And, and I think the most frequent one are mostly financial or strategic. But um, we've talked a lot about values. And I think I will go into that direction. And I think being true to yourself is probably the most important thing because you have to be passionate about what you do, um, because there will be a lot of challenge along the way, but they can all be overcome if if you're truly passionate and if you care about what you do. And one good example is, as we mentioned, we, it's super easy to launch a watch business. You, you go to a watch fair, you see the thousands of design they are, and you just ask for a specific design and with your logo on a dial. And that's it. Three months later, you have it uh, delivered to your door, but without being different and without our strong values and without working four years to get the exact watch that we had in mind, I don't think we would have a business today. I think it's such a competitive market. uh, And if you don't innovate and if you're not different and if people don't believe in your values, if you're not true to yourself, um, I think it's going to be very, very challenging to do something you love and you care about. So Take the extra time to love what you do and to find the idea that really suits you. And of course, don't hesitate to, to launch it when, you, when, when you're there. Thanks, uh, Samuel. And Mike, values, so important. Uh, values are what distinguishes this uh, product from virtually all other competitors in the sector. Yeah, look, I mean, that the values and the morals should be what drives everything that we do at the end of the day. And, and it's not to say that 
um, you know, everybody has to, uh, you know, uh, pontificate on, uh, you know, on, on, on the virtues of certain things. But I think everybody and, and every business owner has a certain uh, amount of, of, of liability and, and responsibility at the end of the day in order to uh, make the world a better place while they're going along. I don't think uh, there's any need for us to, uh, to be completely destructive in order to, to, to build things up around us. So, you know, hats off to Samuel and his team for, for what they've created. And hopefully this is just, uh, just, just what the, the industry needs in order to, uh, to move this forward. Samuel Leroux, Solios Watches, thanks so much for joining us this week. Thanks so much, Dan. Thanks, Mike. Thanks for uh, having me. Real pleasure. A reminder, you can subscribe to Inspiring Entrepreneurs Montreal as a podcast on iHeartRadio, Apple, Spotify, or your favorite platform. Only a couple more shows left for the season. And you can also log on to the website, inspiringentrepreneursmtl.com, for hundreds of local entrepreneur profiles dating back to 2009. See you back here next week. This has been a production of TNKR Media. Good talk.